Good morning again, and uh, hopefully everyone is uh, logging back into our seminar. I think the, the next presentation is scheduled for two minutes, so we'll give everyone uh, just a chance to get back on their Zooms and office chairs, cars, wherever you are right now. And if you're if you're seeing this on a recorded version, then hopefully you're safe and uh, warm and, uh, and enjoying your morning, or afternoon, or coffee, which would be great. And um, uh, Dr. Barry has has joined us after you know the great presentation by Luis Rivera. So we have. Uh, I'm just going to give everyone a, a, just a minute before I introduce Dr. Barry. All right, welcome back, everyone. It's uh, time. It's uh, 9.44, almost 9.45. Thank you for joining us. And we will continue with our second presentation uh, of this symposium, very important symposium. And it's just uh, delighted to have our, our speaker in, in just a, a second. But I do want to take time to celebrate, you know, something that happened yesterday, which is really uh, remarkable in the history of our country. And, and that's the, the confirmation, the nomination of, uh, of our new Supreme Court Justice, uh, Ketanji Brown-Jackson. I mean, this is uh, a great, uh, uh, you know, the first uh, African-American woman in the court. Um, and I think for the first time we have uh, a court that is, is not based only on uh, white guys. Uh, and that's really important. I think it's, a, it's something that is changing, is representing our country in, in many more ways. And I hope we continue in that journey. So very proud day for us here in the United States of America. Uh, and now for the second presentation, uh, I'm going to introduce Dr. Linda Berry, uh, a formidable leader in her own right. Uh, I've known her for quite a while, and we work together in a variety of committees. Uh, Dr. Berry is Associate Professor of Surgery at the UConn School of Medicine. Uh, she's the Diversity Representative for UConn at the Association of American Medical Colleges. Uh, she's also the Director of the Office of Multicultural and Community Affairs at the UConn School of Medicine and also serves as the director of the visiting externship for students in underrepresented medicine at the UConn School of Medicine. She has an impressive pedigree. She trained her bachelor's initially at Yale University in psychology and psychobiology, 
Uh, she obtained her medical degree from Cornell University, uh, where she had an honors in research, and an MPH from uh, the University of Columbia Mailman School of Public Health in health promotion and disease prevention. Uh, she has uh, incredible training, uh, and where she, she did her uh, training in general surgery at East Bay Surgical, her fellowship at USC LA County Medical Center in hepatobiliary liver and pancreatic surgery, and a fellowship at USF uh, Tampa General Hospital in the minimally invasive surgery. Uh, she previously served as the Chief Operating Officer and Assistant Director of the Connecticut Institute for Clinical and Translational Science, CCATS, at UConn. And within CCATS, Dr. Barry served as the Director of the CCATS Young Innovative Investigator Program and Director of the CCATS Mentorship N1 Program and Co-Director of the CCATS Pilot Program. She has been a strong supporter of the Department of Pediatrics and Connecticut Children's uh, and a true advocate uh, for the advancement of, of minorities in, in healthcare uh, in, in supportive in so many ways. And it's really, um, I'm honored and proud to have uh, Dr. Barry presenting this morning at this symposium. Dr. Barry, if you can start your presentation. Thank you so much, Dr. Salazar, for that wonderful introduction. And um, I appreciate the honor of having the opportunity to present to you and your colleagues. And I just wanna say, I, I echo, there are lots of little girls waking up this morning thinking that they can be the next Supreme Court justice because to see is to believe. So that being said, um, my talk today is uh, titled Challenges in Achieving Health Equity, the System, the Provider, and Opportunities to Improve Health Outcomes. And so I wanna kind of take a deep dive of what the structural issues are in the system and where do we as physicians, um, can, where can we play a role to uh, change the system to improve our, our health outcomes for our patients? So I have no conflict of interest to disclose. And I'm just gonna start first by making sure we're all on the same page. So I apologize for those who know the, the lingo, but you know, to have this conversation, we need to be talking about it from the same starting point. So how are health disparities defined? It's defined by Healthy People 2020 as health difference that is closely linked with social, economic, or environmental disadvantage. The role of social determinants health can be a range of personal, social, economic, and environmental factors contributing to individual and population health. And they are in part responsible for the unequal and avoidable differences in health status that we see within and between communities. But I wanna make the case that race and or ethnicity serves as an independent factor, almost like an umbrella in which all of these other factors can be accentuated in a negative way um, that creates a sustained um, differential in health outcomes in certain communities. I often hear the concept of health equity being used as a placeholder for health disparities, but I actually think it's important that we talk about what health equity is it's reducing and ultimately eliminating disparities in health. It's determinants and it's determinants that adversely affect excluded and marginalized groups. So the ultimate goal is that we go from where we are now, which is persistent health disparities, to where we want to be, health equity. It's important to understand that it's a destination and it's a pathway that we have to get, attain. Because when you're talking to different people in different contexts, health equity seems more palatable but we're not there yet. So I love these um, graphics and I'm sure many of you have seen it where we define, well, what is equality? And the, you see this cartoon here, everyone has the same box. They're all at the same level. And so you see there, there are inherent disadvantages that despite each start, starting at the same point with the same um, 
Bucks, they don't get the same view. They don't get the same opportunity to see the game. But here with equity, we try to compensate and um, for the, the, the disadvantage to enable everyone to see the same perspective, same opportunity. But this is the reality, right? There's some of us who have more advantage and there's some of us who have multiple factors that put them deep in the hole. Um, and so the ability to actually see before you may be compromised indefinitely. But I wanna make the case that this is where we need to be. We wanna just remove all barriers. And we want to have an unfettered vision of what good health and good health outcomes should be. So let's talk about the fact that we're in the state of Connecticut. Connecticut is actually one of the six wealthiest states. So we actually have metrics that indicate as a state, we're among the healthiest. Yet even in that context, the same health disparities that you see in other states persist here, mainly among specific racial and ethnic groups. And specifically, um, they're more pronounced in the black and Latino communities, although there are other uh, communities that similarly, you can find um, differentials in health outcomes. In particular, infant mortality, babies of black mothers are four times likely to die before the age of one. Um, and this is a bit greater than the national average. Um, the lowest life expectancies is seen in predominantly black and Latino neighborhoods. And when you look at the cost, if, let's just talk about dollars. There's more money that is being spent on the health of black residents and Hispanic residents because of their compromised health outcomes. And so when we, we circle back to the social determinants, these are uh, directly impactful to our ability to maintain a healthy life. If you don't have access to transportation and you can see the differentials persists against the same groups, lack of access to food, neighborhood safety, and then ability to have affordable housing. And in those homes live children. And so the entire family unit are exposed to these negative uh, social determinants of health. But it is too easy to say it's a social determinant of health. Um, if you look deeper and you can control for those, such as insurance, access to healthcare, um, particularly in uh, Black maternal mortality, there is this consistent um, high rate of deaths among that subgroup of women that is higher than in third world nations. And in that context, it's not about socioeconomic status. Race is a predominating factor. Why is that? It requires us to have some self-reflection. And I, this is just another graphic that kind of contrasts what I had mentioned before. So here we are, 2022. And I can honestly say without having to go through a, a complete literature search that nothing has changed. From the time I was in college to the time in now, I don't want to date myself, the same health disparities persist among the same groups. And specific racial and ethnic groups and certain geographically placed groups and economically disadvantaged groups are disproportionately affected. They have poor access to care, they have poor quality of care, and there's a higher percentage of among them of uninsured or underinsured. Um, and now with COVID, as you all know, it has worsened underlying health disparities and exacerbated the social determinants of health as contributing factors. But in the midst of all of this, I can say that race is highlighted. And in this moment, as we have come to a racial awareness and a reckoning, 
it's our opportunity to examine the role that it plays in systemically and interpersonally in the um, healthcare delivery. So I, this is a quote that is often attributed to Martin Luther King. Of all the forms of inequality, injustice in health is the most shocking and inhumane. But that is actually a rephrasing. The actual comp quote is, of all the forms of inequality, injustice in health is the most shocking and the most inhumane because it often results in physical death. And I think that part that is often left out is key, that it can kill you. The injustice that is seen in healthcare can kill you. And so when we put it in that context, given that we take a Hippocratic oath and a, a duty to serve, it should compel us to be more um, motivated to change the trajectory. So in that context, I want to start out by let us having a unified understanding that race is not biological, it is a social construct. Why can I say that? Well, let's think about it. 23andMe has shown, if you do a genetic test, that there's probably more likelihood that you have more genetically in common with the white person, me sitting next to a white person than a black person on the other side of me. There's no allele that says I'm supposed to be this black and this brown or this white. <clears throat> and <clears throat> if you understand how it came into being the history of a country, it was to create a tier system of a social hierarchy. But I like Mara Jones's definition of racism in particular as a system of structuring opportunity and assessing value based on the social inter interpretation of how one looks, which unfairly disadvantages some individuals and community, unfairly advantages other individuals and communities, and saps the strength of the whole society to the waste of human resources. So why now? Why should you care? Uh, and I, I say this, and I, I'm keeping up this, this uh, explanation to drive it home, is that we're, it seems like the post-Joyd Floyd event has been a turning point that has made us all aware that in every sector, there is a disadvantage or disproportionate negative impact on certain groups of people. And it has required us to do some introspection. And so our patients, our students, our residents, and our consciousness, our own conscious is, is asking us to do something. So I like this graphic because it kind of ties in a lot of the um, components that leads to the, the concept of structural racism, right? So as clinicians and health providers, many have to do cultural competency, have to do implicit bias training. And it is actually tied into feeding into the sustaining uh, sustainment of uh, many policies and assumptions that can translate to uh, maintaining the structural components of racism. It's not a reflection of a person. We are, we are kind of conditioned by the society and the structures we live in. And you can see this in so many different ways from voting rights to loans, to access to education. And all of these things have shown to have a negative impact on children, health, and long-term in in, into adulthood. And that's how we see this persistent inequitable outcomes and racial disparities. And so everyone is pushing for us to become more anti-racist. Um, and so we wanna move towards racial justice and, and equity. And so what does that require of us? It requires us to consciously make equitable choices and decisions every time and every day. 
Implicit bias means it's subconscious. And so we have to elevate it to our consciousness because being racist or anti-racist, it's not about who you are. It's about what you do. And so when we look at racism, there are actually different tiers. What, who would have thought of what racism looks like? And these are opportunities where we can work towards racial justice in our daily lives and in how we interface with our patients. So individually, there are internalized beliefs and actions that can be conscious and unconscious, and that's called individualized racism, which is different from interpersonal racism, which is your interaction with others, where racism is expressed through biases or harmful actions toward another. But then if you take it more macro, you have institutional racism, and that's an, that's an organizationally based concept that is not explicit in being favorable to one group, but is persistently disadvantaged to people of color. And so there are policies and practices and treatments that are prejudiced and biased and have unfair in terms of their outcomes. And this results in goods and services and opportunities in society becoming inaccessible or less accessible to people of color. And institutions exist in a society. And that when you bring it out as broad as you can imagine, that's the system we live in. And that's the structural racism that I'm talking about. And so that broadly encompasses how these institutions and um, interact with each other in society. And it tends to work out that it favors white people more often over other groups, or it excludes people of color. It's not an indictment of any group, it's just the way the system was originally built. And I will show you why. Because it's been codified into law and policies that have broad impact on local, state, and national levels. So I'm gonna take us back to a little history here. Because it started out that federal policy codified structural racism. And it came in the guise of the Hill-Burton Act of 1946, um, which was also known as the Hospital Survey and Construction Act, and it was signed by Harry, President Harry Truman. The goal was after World War II to uh, uh, address the health needs of a country and also spur innovation and job growth. And so hospitals were constructed across the, the country, especially in places where there were none. And so federal funding was established in order to maintain sustainability. It funded hospitals, clinics, rehabs, nursing homes, and is still in existence today. And it obligated each institution that received those dollars to provide free subsidized care. And this is what set the groundwork for Medicaid. So federal and, uh, dollars are matched by state dollars. But it also, in a backroom deal with the Southern Democrats in order to get this passed, codified separate but equal care. And so by, pulling the levers of federal dollars, you could determine where the hospitals were and who had access to them. And so on the state level, they were given the power to determine how the money was dispersed. And it often um, was at the disadvantage of people of color in terms of providing healthcare services. And so uh, the concept of waiting rooms that were racially segregated and hospitals where you know people of color were turned away when it became um, codified. And you know may, many uh, of us may be part of the American Medical Association, but back in the day they worked hand in hand in order to maintain the racially segregated care. They were one of the most powerful medical societies and most powerful lobbying entities at the time. And um, 
in their endorsement of racial segregation, they were able to link membership to their organization to obtaining hospital privileges. So imagine being a doctor, but you cannot practice because you don't have privileges at the local hospital. They did not encourage membership among Black, Hispanic, and other um, groups they did not see fit to be part of the organization. But they also had a more insidious impact on shaping medical education and the training of doctors and the access to care. They commissioned the Flexner Report, and if you did not know, this used John Hopkins at the time as a standard, which had a lot of resources and, and, and rich um, uh, uh, contributors. And that led to the few Black med schools that were designed to create doctors to take care of that population because other doctors would not, to close. So there were at least seven to 10 Black med schools, and then it was reduced to three. And so the other medical schools were not taking Black applicants. And so there is legacy here when we're looking at trying to recruit um, underrepresented into these uh, into our different professions. It was made in a way to make it an inclusive environment. And so at that time, they opposed Medicare and Medicaid. It was perceived and they were promoting it as communism. It wasn't until 2018 that the uh, AMA acknowledged their role and uh, apologized. But it was also the largest um, and oldest medical association, the National Medical Association, that represented the Black physicians and Black health professionals that turned a tide to dismantle racial segregation in healthcare. Title IV of 1964 Civil Rights Act prohibits the discrimination on the basis of race, color, and national origin in programs and activities receiving federal and financial assistance. And so they worked behind the scenes in, in developing it that, so if you were a, a hospital that received Medicare dollars, you could not discriminate and deny care to black patients and other patients of color. And so that is how um, Medicare translated into the ending of ha uh, racial segregation in hospitals. Oh, and I just wanna give acknowledgement that Dr. William Mont uh, Montag Cobb was the president and a fierce advocate um, that helped to get this passed. And yet 58 years later, now we're declaring racism as a public health crisis. It's always been, but now it's publicly been proclaimed to be so. So what does that mean exactly? And we will circle back as to what that means on a national level, but I'm gonna drill down now into what it looks like on the ground. And I could not ignore the impact of COVID because it was a canary in the coal mine and it, the black community were the canaries. So when you look at COVID, particularly in black and in communities of color, I see structural racism. Again, it highlights how race is a social construct because the disease did not specifically pick black and Hispanic patients over white patients. There was a reason why they got the disproportionate um, number of deaths and morbidity from this uh, disease. And what it also highlighted, there was a politics of empathy. This was a disease that happened behind closed doors. We did not see the carnage because we could not be with our loved ones. And so many, people of color felt when people suddenly started to open up that they really didn't seem to understand that the 
they, they were hurting and putting at risk people who could not afford masks at the time, if you can recall, um, didn't have the ability to um, do mitigating changes to reduce their risk. Suddenly, essential workers were not doctors and nurses, they were bus drivers. They were gig workers who would shop for you with Instacart. They were the Uber drivers. These are the people who have no safety net, right? Uh, they are often don't have health insurance. They, you know, they were had access to health centers that were under resources. They lived in uh, congregate housing, so they couldn't isolate. And one of the things that I noticed in particular as this disease was going through is that we did not have consistent data from an ancient racial and ethnic standpoint. We found out about the carnage when the death certificates were coming out and they started to see disproportionate amount of deaths among certain groups. By that end point, it's too late. And also as we watch this process and now we come to the point where we have vaccines and boosters, throughout this whole process, the COVID messaging has been very poor. Um, and I'm not indicting any one group of people, but if you did not have a foundation of trust to start with, it's pretty hard to come in and say, take this vaccine. And it didn't always come across as culturally and racially and ethnically relevant. And so um, I like this, uh, this graphic because it kind of just shows that that safety net had holes in it. And then through those holes, people of color fell through. And those holes were just as wide for children who were part of those households. And in that, uh, context, this study was done in 2020, 70% of Black people believed they were unfairly treated when they sought medical care due to race and ethnicity. 55% started out distrusting the health system, and almost 50% would not take what was known to be a documented, safe, and free vaccine. And 66%, which I feel is really hurtful to concept, that if more white people died, that, that people would believe the response would have been better. And so what does that say about how people perceive equity in the concept of healthcare? They often did not deem that bias was implicit. They saw it as explicit in their encounters. And there are countless anecdotes of stories of people coming to the hospital, being turned away and dying at home, or that they, their anchor institution had such a bad reputation that they went to the hospital only when it was too late. And so in their minds, this is not a place that I should go to in the context of a, a, you know, a, a pandemic. But in amongst children of color is even, I, I don't wanna say more devastating, but it's more accentuated in the negative impact. These children also tend to have a higher incidence of, of different comorbidities that increase their risk of um, having worse COVID infections. They had increased hospitalizations and morbidity and mortality compared to their white counterparts. And I mentioned before, they were unable to mitigate risk of contracting COVID if they were living in a, an enclosed house or their schools had poor ventilation systems or they did not have access to masks. And so many children are now off orphaned or have lost a, a major anchor in their family from the loss of parents, a caregiver or multiple family men, members. And so you can imagine the mental toll increased depression and suicidal ideation that is, is occurring amongst these children. And the economic insecurity increased during this time because so many people lost their jobs. And the learning and academic advancement of these same children were compromised. 
everyone's like, oh, let's do telehealth, let's do um, home-based learning. Well, there's a digital divide. It costs money to have access to the internet. Broadband is not cheap. If you don't have a job, you don't have a computer, um, you don't have safety in your home, that you know you there that your background is a neutral space, and suddenly everybody's in everybody's home. And so, you know, that is something that you know we will start seeing the effects of that in many, many years to come. But I also want to tell you that those things may seem obvious, but there's certain components of structural racism that is so insidious and invisible that it makes it harder to make change. And so I think one good um, example of that is when you look at race and diagnostic algorithms. So um, this is a, a great article that I would recommend for you to read um, about this concept. And so when we talk about algorithms, you know, we identify as uh, an individual clinical risk assessment that helps provide guidance for cl clinical decision-making. So your input can be predicated though on bias and invalid race-based medicine. And so what is the consequence of that? Is that disproportionately um, there's a direct focus on in resources allocated to white patients compared to other racial and ethnic minorities. So it's not that it was the intent, but that is what is happening. And so in this uh, study, they looked at, a, you know, this is just a snapshot, uh, uh, several different types of algorithms and different, um, I guess specialties you would, you would say. And there were calculations made, extra points added or taken away to certain subgroups that would determine when and what type and how they would receive care. And consistently, they would see that that translated the, to um, poor outcomes among uh, most often black patients, but in other subgroups as well. And I wanna kind of just drill down on um, the concept of the African-American GFR. Cause I've been talking about this for a while and it's highlighted here under nephrology, right? So the consequence, when we get our labs, I don't know if you recall whether you're a patient or a provider, when we order our um, chem panel, you would see creatinine and there would be creatinine and then it would have AFAM GFR. So there was a specific subcategory for black patients. So a high GFR equals better kidney function. And the, this was predicated on a study done, I think it was in the 1990s, um, where they, they had about um, uh, 80 something thousand patients. And they found among black patients that they had um, more muscular, more, they deemed to have be more muscular at higher proteins um, and therefore, when they checked their creatinine, they had a higher GFR. So they created this calculation that adjusted for a higher level for black patients compared to white patients. And so, uh, you know, if same patient, you know, a black patient, uh, sorry, two, a black patient, a white patient, they would end up just automatically adding more points to the black patient based on this calculation, right? So that their kidney function would look better. But that translates into delays and in referrals to specialists for transplants, higher rates of end-stage renal disease. And so when we take a look and we see how consistent that black patients tend to have a higher risk of renal disease, chronic renal disease, are you know, receiving dialysis at disproportionate rates, we need to tie it back to the impact of something like this. And so the way you know race is a, race is a social construct is that many hospitals have stopped using 
the African-American GFR. And now that has now become a national standard. So um, a task force was created uh, that created a unit that did an assessment and looked at the race-based calculation and the impact. And it, one of the things that stuck out to me is that the rationale for this task force they stated that race is a social and not a biological construct. The problematic nature of applying race, clinical algorithms, and the need to advance health equity and social justice. And it struck me when I met a woman who is, um, she would identify as biracial, she was black, and one parent was Chinese American. And she was like, which one should I pick? I said, whichever one is the best one for you and would get you to see a doctor first. Because asking me that question is not based on science. And that just shows how much it, it fluctuates as we become a more multiracial society. And the clinical implications of removal of race is huge. Increased number, uh, it increases the number who will be considered for potential kidney donors. It increases the number and the earlier referral for transplant. It changes prescribing patterns for medication because now you calculate the filtration rate differently. Early referrals to a nephrology specialist. It changes the consideration just to order a CT scan because creatinine clearance is involved. Changing the timing of when we um, send someone for vascular access. It changes the timing of when someone would start dialysis. So how can we just ignore something so key when it has these ripple effects on health outcomes? So I ask you, I'm not a pediatrician, I'm a surgeon, but I ask you, are there opportunities to revisit the current pediatric algorithms and guidelines using a health equity lens. And I think, you know, we need to start doing that in a more consistent basis as we provide care for diverse patient population. But it's not just GFR. I specifically made an effort to look at, well, what's happening in the pediatric population? Because, you know, we all go with the intent to provide good care to our patients. Yet there's a consistent trend in what would look like objective measures of desperate care. And so here is a study that looked at um, diagnostic imaging in the emergency department, and they evaluated 13 million, 13 million excuse me, emergency room visits among 44 children hospitals across the country. Um, and so they, among the group, they noted that there were, this was a breakdown in terms of different racial groups, and that no matter what modality, be it CT scan, ultrasound, there were, there were differences in how, which studies were ordered. And so they're matching them for the same kind of disease process, but white children got more radiographic studies than black children. Um, and you can look at the, this, you know, glass half full, glass half empty. It could translate into overuse. There's, there's a risk with children when they're exposed to radiation. And so white children may be getting more radiographic studies than they may, may need versus underuse among Black and Hispanic children, um, which would show um, that maybe they're not being considered. And so some of the structural components that were brought up in the context of, of this article was that many um, uh, children of color lacked a medical home and a primary care. A lot of you know um, the white patients were often referred to emergency room and they had an advocate and a primary care physician who would you know, push for a radiographic study. The other components that they did not factor in is their insurance, whether they were um, uh, on, uh, it would be the, the CHIP program, which is like Medicaid for children, or if they had private insurance. 
Um, they didn't mention about hospitals. Like if you're in a poorly resourced hospital versus a high resource hospital. I mean, if you're in a trauma hospital, do you have the same access to radiographic services than if you're in a private hospital in the suburbs? And so there are all the ways you can tease out, but I think it's the, the, the takeaway should make us look at how are we ordering these studies for both, whether you're looking at white children, black or Hispanic children, we wanna order studies when they're appropriate and um, needed because it's also adds to the healthcare deficit, um, the increased spending of healthcare dollars. So one of the things that I brought up in a couple of talks I've given is this article that was in the New York Times. And it's funny because it's through COVID that we noted that pulse oximeters that we use are so ubiquitous in the hospital have been shown to have a higher error rate in black patients. And how did they find that out? Well, patients were, um, you know, would come to the hospital with COVID symptoms. They would do a pulse ox. They were, and if, and if you recall, we were strapped. So if they had normal um, oxygen saturation, they were sent home with instructions of when to come back. But when they came back sicker, they would do arterial blood gases. And when you compared that to the pulse ox, they were widely off. And so it is based on the skin hue, the tone of the skin, that there are errors in how these pulse oximeters are reading oxygen saturation. And that is huge. And when I say that, I think, well, if I were running a hospital, I would want to look, go and take a look back at all of the pulse ox and do my uh, internal QA, QA study to make sure that these machines are truly reflecting the data that is necessary. Because this is empowering patients to push back, right? Now they know that they're being evaluated machines that are not um, meant for them. So I looked at the literature to see, well, what is happening among children? And the same thing applies. In this study, 21% of black children had arterial hypoxemia that, but had normal pulse ox um, measurements of oxygen saturation. So the pulse ox were two times as likely to miss arterial hypoxemia in black children. And so there's disproportionate amount of these children who have asthma and other pulmonary problems and superimpose COVID into that. That is a, a, a horrible scenario where we're underserving this population. And so a structural issue, a machine that is not providing equitable readings is an area where we can make a change, where we need to compel companies to think about the hues of our patients so that we're getting data that we can make truly good clinical decisions. But I think one of the, this is, as a surgeon struck me, I, I came across this article and the title is so jarring. After surgery, black children are more likely to die than white children. And, you know, this is a tension grabbing headline, but I did go back to read the actual article in uh, pediatrics. And this study assigned, um, did a retrospective analysis looking at, um, there's called NISFIP, it's a surgical quality database. And they looked at patients who were assigned uh, uh, what they call ASA 1 or 2. So they were deemed as healthy candidates in terms of baseline, so that they're not coming to the operating room with comorbidities, which have often been associated as the reason why they're poor surgical outcomes if you came preoperatively to the surgery with a lot of comorbidities, right? So that's supposed to be not a major contributing factor here. And they noted that when you looked at 30-day mortality, black children were approximately 3.5 times more likely to die than their white counterparts. And the same was among, um, probably not as high, but there was a 
a, a distinct difference in post-op complications. And the most often ones were bleeding and requiring bleeding transfusion, sepsis, the unplanned reoperation and unplanned reintubation. Now, as a surgeon, I know my colleagues do the utmost best in the operating room, but there's so many er areas where we don't have control or there, uh, the impact of one uh, decision is impacting another. So when I look at that study, I think, okay, we can't compare operations. Uh, I've been operated on children who have appendicitis and not every appendicitis is the same, right? And um, they didn't take into account insurance status. They didn't take into account the hospitals that they were in and if they were under-resourced. They didn't take into account the fact that um, who did the operation, you know, uh, you know were, were they people who were well-trained? Um, and so all of these are mitigating factors, but they're all structural because all of these negative factors tend to be disproportionately in areas where people of color live in. They have under-resourced hospitals. They don't get access to the best uh, of, of, of state-of-the-art technology, and they don't have great insurance, right? And you know, you can imagine if a if a if a, a child does not come for the post-op visit and then and presents later on due to a lot of mitigating circumstances, then they can end up having undetected infection that can evolve into sepsis. And so, you know, understanding well, how you know where in the post-operative treatment did this occur? These are all nuances, but you know what? It doesn't matter. Because then that puts me in a defensive crouch of saying, okay, these are all mitigating factors. No, I need to take a step back and see that the, the public hears this title and then that is the reality that they see and that we as a community need to um, make sure that that reality is not the case and that we change it. And so I look at race and racism in the context of uh, the healthcare system as having an interpersonal, structural, and individual components, right? And together, they translate into poor health outcomes and health disparities. And I think one of the things that it's, it's difficult when we think about it, particularly our interpersonal interactions with our patients, is that even though we do implicit bias training, um, there was a study that found that, you know, white residents found, thought that black patients uh, had thicker skin, had a, a higher pain threshold. And in, in particular, children were not, you know, of color, were not getting pain medication as they needed. And so what do we need to do to take that training so that it is activated in the moment? Because the worst thing is when a patient calls you out on bias, it undermines your trust and it makes it difficult going forward to, for them to, to, to follow through with someone if they had to call you out in that because unbeknownst to you, they might not think you have their best intentions at heart. So I wanted to just restate that race is an independent risk factor for poor health. And it's been shown in an unequal treatment that is held through today. It didn't matter about your insurance status, your education status, uh, or you know where you come from, that it is persistent. And so when we try and put it on genetics, that is more an excuse and it's become obsolete as an explanation because that puts an onus on the person and takes it off of us to look at the system. And structure racism is the foundation for which many of the negative impacts originate. And so that structure provides a context for negative interpersonal reacts and exchanges that are rooted in bias. And so it, if you consider that framework, the black patient as an individual internalizes that negative experience in the system. 
And so there's a, like a trust. They avoid they avoid coming in contact with the healthcare system, and they really have low expectations. And so they don't expect much, and they don't ask for much. So I look at I always try to say, well, how can we all be advocates? How could we be better and change the system? Because we don't have to just be passive in this. Um, and so the AMA, funny enough, um, they are working hard to to make a positive trajectory going forward. They have a, a manual, which is called Racial and Health Equity, Concrete Steps for Smaller Practices. And some of the key takeaways is to identify ways to prepare yourself and your team for conversations about health equity, racial equity, racism, anti-racism that could occur between colleagues, patients, and other practice stakeholders. Um, it's really important to, to look at uh, data and, and understand its importance and how to improve the quality of your data to for further um, racial and health equity efforts. How often are we looking at our practice and look and see trends among our different patients? Now, I will say we don't have the bandwidth. Just filling out your medical record EPIC is a, a soul-sucking experience. So I'm sure the concept of doing retrospective data, but because we don't, we, we miss trends where we could have made changes. And explain how to advance racial and health equity in your practice using smart girls that, um, that help you to really understand how to improve quality uh, improvement in, um, in your efforts. And SMART is specific, measurable, achievable, relevant, and timely. So there are caveats. You know, the Affordable Care Act was one opportunity that helped to address some structural components um, by expanding coverage. So particularly for children, uh, that up uh, to age 26, um, they were, as they were able to stay on their parents' insurance or they expanded Medicaid coverage because many were aging out of the foster care system and had no coverage at all. Um, Connecticut's moving to um, promoting value-based reimbursement, you know, which looks at outcomes and it's looking to improve quality while reducing spending. So that's an opportunity. It's an investment to make sure that your patient's health outcomes um, are in the, going in the right direction. I firmly believe that e-health um, e and m-health, um, electronic health records, health apps, are being underutilized as an opportunity to, to address health inequity. Um, you know, as I mentioned, the digital divide is a barrier among seniors, among uh, low-income households, but they are opportunities to empower patients to understand how to navigate the system and to be advocates for, advocates for themselves. And we need to start looking at them from that perspective. Um, Apply health equity lens to your workflows, your policy, to your practice, and your patient interaction. It's a conscious effort every time, you know, um, because we as physicians are advocates, whether we recognize it or not. Um, this is the process where you got to learn. And coming to a session like this shows that you're willing to learn. And so taking advantage, advantage in every aspect of medical education, from medical school to residency to continuing medical education, is an opportunity for you to acquire new tools and new skills to address these issues. And one thing I want to underscore is that basic science needs to catch up so that it needs to be in alignment with clinical practice when we're looking at race as we are assessing our patient populations and coming up with new guidelines and clinical algorithms and recommendations. But I want to just try to wrap up in the context of what's bigger picture here. What does racial justice look like when we finally reach it in the context of our healthcare system? 
It requires dismantling of structural racism embedded in laws and policies that have fueled and sustained racial segregation and perpetuation of health disparities among specific racial groups. And so I'm circling back because again, suddenly we, we're saying racism is a public health crisis. We, in actuality, it's always been. So we need to go beyond defining the problem, which a lot of states have now declared it, including the state of Connecticut as a public health crisis. Um, and it requires actionable data. You, don't, you need to understand the scope of the problem to address the problem. And you need to do a retroactive review of policies to see the impact. And so we talk about racial equity, but it needs to be applied to policies, funding, the budget, allocation of resources and programming. But another key lynching, a linchpin, excuse me, uh, is community engagement. If the community is not engaged and they don't trust you, all of these efforts can be for not. So I, many people may not know, but there was an Anti-Racism Public Health Act that was introduced last year by um, uh, uh, Representative Anna Presley and Elizabeth Warner. Um, and um, I think it was Representative Barbara Lee. Um, and they wanted to establish a national center for anti-racism and law enforcement violence prevention programs at the CDC. They also wanted to prioritize race in the development of health interventions and addressing uh, social determinants of health. They wanted to create an educational component that would inform the public about the harms of structural racism and also address the lack of health information by requiring data be consistently disaggregated by race so that it can actually be measured in terms of the impact of racism. This is still stalled, but this is an opportunity where we could advocate for something like this or make sure our representatives, you know, understand what do we need in an institute like this in order to have um, better resources and better information to provide care. So when Connecticut declared uh, racism a public health crisis, they established a commission on racial equity. Um, and that was established last year. And among the uh, mandates of this commission, they are supposed to track race and ethnicity data. Uh, they required implicit bias training for employees who provide direct care to pregnant or postpartum women. And they're gonna do a retroactive review of the COVID response to identify areas where things could have been done better, particularly among vulnerable communities. The other, uh, oh, sorry. And, um, and so when you look at all of, of the opportunities that are, are available to us, I think we can say, we don't have to maintain the status quo. We can deconstruct structural racism, but it requires a coalition that's multiracial and diverse in terms of our backgrounds and perspectives. Um, it requires unwavering commitment. You know, we had this groundswell of people gathering together and we cannot let that momentum go. But it also requires accountability of us and the system that we work in. It requires us to allocate resources. Uh, we have to sometimes invest in order to get the returns we want. We need to put our focus on these issues and it requires strength. There's often gonna be people who give pushback, but it, and most of all, it requires empathy. And I wanted to close to say, you see there's only one constant, one universal. It is the only real trust that causality, action, reaction, cause, and effect. And with that, I wanna leave with the rhetorical question. What is your role in addressing the problem? Thank you. And I'll take any questions.
thank you, uh, Linda. That was uh, spectacular as always. Uh, really appreciate you bringing this to light and and saying it like it is. Um, I've always known you to to do that, and it's very important in in these times. And uh, so again, for all the participants, uh, please use the Q and A. Uh, uh, section uh, for questions, and we, we have the first one. Uh, do you mentor uh, uh, BIPOC women that are interested in the topics you specialize in? If not, are there any programs that offer similar guidance should we, that we can empower women into leadership? Uh, yes and yes. So my door is always open. I actually sit on the National Steering Committee for um, the Group on Women in Medicine and Science for the uh, the Association of American Medical Colleges. And um, I am part of also a task force that um, we're developing a toolkit for women of color in order to um, you know, give them the skill set and tools for leadership. And the toolkit is actually has a component for institutions because again, we're always looking at the system as much as the individual. Um, and I myself, want, I practice what I preach. And so um, I, my contact information was on the last slide. I am available, and I, I think it's important that um, networking and supporting each other um, is something that we all do. Any other questions? You hear me? I yeah. did not hear you. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, there, yeah, there's another question. And how can BIPOC healthcare workers become involved in making these changes on a macro level? That is a great question. <clears throat> I think, you know, it's interesting because I, whenever I give these talks, I think of the entire experience. So imagine from the minute a patient walks into your door, what are their experiences? So if a patient of color has a bad experience with the front desk, that will tarnish their encounter with everybody else going forward. You know, when we, and so all of these, these like I think cultural competency, which I actually think is a misnomer. I think we are, should all be culturally humble um, and because and, we no one is an expert in ones, but to, to actually do some, have affinity groups and support groups in your institution to talk about these issues, have more forums like this, but have it where it's more engaged and that people come with questions so that speakers can actually, you know, come prepared to give you some real actionable um, actions. Do a smart uh, uh, analysis, look at your, where your workspace is and look at the outcomes. Let's say you notice that there are certain patients who have a Medicaid and they have, they're not coming in consistently at time. Well, let's not only blame the patient. What time are their appointments? Is it the middle of the day? Is it the end of the day? Maybe there should be a different way of how you book these things. Now, I know that's not easy, you know, it's often when, when an opening comes up. But these are little things that can change and have a ripple effect that is huge. And so, um, I think when you, people need to have, and, and I think there has to be a more equitable discussion. There are often these hierarchies. And so there, the staff on the ground often see things that leadership does not. And there need to be spaces where conversation can be had so that they can contribute. 
um, to this. And this is like um, Toyota does this. They have the lean and the Sigma models where they have all members of the team from the highest levels to those who are on the ground in order to have a really good exchange of ideas that can translate to culture and environmental change. Yeah, thanks. Uh, Lynn, I have, I have a question. Uh, you, you mentioned, uh, you know, in your presentation, you mentioned practice guidelines and then to uh, incorporate into your practice guidelines uh, additional additional elements re related to race uh, or background and um, so I, I just can you elaborate on that I think it's we have you know here at Connecticut Children's we have a just a stupendous group of people that have practice guidelines for a variety of of conditions and and we generally base it on on scientific evidence and we we do not include a, a specific race or creed or color within the, the treatment or diagnostic strategies. Can you elaborate on that? It seems like we may be missing something. Well, you know, and I, I, I can't, I'm not saying it's a broad brush, this applies to every single guideline. But um, I think where, as you mentioned, you're applying it, you're not considering race. To, have you taken a look back to disaggregate the data and now look at the impact of race. Like, are there certain subgroups of, of patients that despite equitable applica application of the treatment and the guidelines, they still have poor outcomes? Why? Why? The problem is we don't have the bandwidth in the way our practices in the hospital runs to and analyze that. You know, don't think we take advantage of the multidisciplinary teams that are in place, particularly in the hospital setting. They come in in piecemeal rather than at the same time. So like, I feel like Epic is an opportunity um, to do something like that. So let's, let's say you, you had asthma uh, protocol and you noticed that certain subgroup of patients did poorly. And let's say there were, uh, 20% of the African-American children didn't do as well as expected. You could look, Epic would enable you to look at, are they in the same zip code? Epic will tell you what are their insurance coverage? Epic will tell you, do they come from an unstable home? Epic will tell you, you know, are they you know, getting their prescriptions filled regularly? Because you could provide the treatment, but all these factors undermine your treatment, right? And because we are just looking at that moment of time, we have that snapshot of where we interact. We're not factoring all these other mitigating factors. And what would be ideal is if Epic could, you know, suddenly ding um, social work. Epic could suddenly ding, you know, um, it, somebody in, 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 who can be a crisis in, in intervention. We don't have that. They end up getting referred at a later date after the visit. And there's, there's no bandwidth for the family or the child to follow through. And so those are the kind of things. It's, it's not an easy change. But I think the first thing to do is to look at data. You say you're, you're applying these in an equitable fashion. Are the outcomes equitable? Great. Thank you. We, uh, from Rob Ketter, uh, uh, just a comment, uh, Dr. Barry, thank you so much as we're well into the age of behavioral health pandemic. This session really opens the way forward to future discussions on behavioral and mental health equity moving uh, in, in the future. Thank you, Rob. That's a very good comment. Um, another question is, how do you recommend navigating difficult conversations with higher level providers that are not taking race or exper and experiences into consideration? 
How can we make these conversations easier to have? And do we encourage the staff not to judge the situations our patients are in? Wow. Uh, <laughs> huh. Sometimes I it, I think, okay, they are having these conversations are hard because if you identify something as being biased or racist, everyone is a defensive crouch. And as I said, it is not about that person, particularly when you're talking about it in the context of the system. And I think it's good to have maybe not just your voice, but have others that can amplify it. Don't come to a conversation just to complain or identify the problem. Show that you did some research, that you have data to back up what, you, what you're saying, and if possible, some ideas of how to address it. Because the response will be, well, I'm not sure, I don't know, we don't have resources. And you got, be, you got to be prepared because that lets um, leadership not have to do anything in, in, in the moment. And it's hard to get that courage back to go revisit it. Um, and it's they're, they're, people are always afraid of risk. They're afraid of backlash, that you're overly sensitive, right? But did we just not say racism is a public health crisis? Does that not mandate us to have an environment that's more conducive to these conversations? Take advantage of the fact that there's a commission now, right? That is in place and that can create a, 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 you know, a context for you to have these conversations. There needs to be forums, have invited speakers. Like I appreciate someone like me and allowing me to have this courageous conversation who are, who are not involved in the situation and help navigate and mediate and facilitate conversations like that. Um, and so I think, I hope I, I addressed that part. I think there was something about judging patients. That is very hard. Um, uh, someone had mentioned to me like in Epic that when a patient shows that there's a graph and the graph shows how many no-shows versus, and it automatically kind of triggers you to think of, of the situation in a negative way. That's the conscious effort. We need to actually consciously because we're going to judge that's the implicit bias that we all have, but we have to consciously dismantle it and say, you know what? I don't know this person's circumstances. Like literally say that to yourself or say, I noticed that you haven't been able to keep our appointments. Is there something that we can do to help facilitate you going forward? I don't think we ask patients things like that. Okay. Thank you. Uh, let's see. I think we have one last question from Jessica Geit. Uh, uh, thank you for this outstanding presentation and overview of this important topic, uh, Dr. Mary. Curious if you, if you may be aware of any particular Connecticut state bills actively being considered during this legislative session, you would recommend that uh, advance health equity. Open to recommendations for potential advocacy and opportunities to write to our representatives to pass the session, if anything comes to mind. Uh, thank you, Jessica, for a good question. So do you know of anything that's coming up? Not off the top of my head, but I can tell you where you can get that information. Um, my, uh, a good colleague of mine, Sakisha Everett, um, she is part of a, um, uh, a nonprofit organization called he Health Equity Solutions. And it takes a very interesting um, perspective on lobbying because it, is a gra it, it tries to engage the community into lobbying for themselves. And so they were very much in, involved in helping to get racism declared as a public health issue. Um, but I, I also think keeping an eye out as to what comes out of the commission 
um, on racial and, and uh, equity is another opportunity. I would also recommend um, that you actually contact your local representative and say, you know, what is going on in the bill? Um, and so I don't know offhand, I haven't had a chance to check in the latest, but um, there are a lot of advocacy opportunities that come up through Health Equity Solutions, which would give you the opportunity to plug in and learn about what's coming down the, the, the pipe. Great. Uh, Dr. Barry, thank you very much for spending uh, the morning with us and, uh, and with this very, very important topic, as always, very informative, uh, transformative, uh, and it gets us energized for doing the right things. Uh, thank you, everyone who joined us for this uh, initial, for the second presentation. We're going to give everyone a 10-minute uh, a break uh, before we begin our third presentation. Uh, which will begin at 11 o'clock. Uh, so please join us for that last one. Make sure you fill out your evaluations um, and go ahead and get credit for CME credit. I think you get nursing credit as well. Uh, thank you for joining us. I'll see you back in a few minutes. 11 o'clock will begin sharply. Thank you. <laughs>